last week, um, you recall, we looked at Satan's deadly devices, and we've been handling Genesis 3 for a portion of time now between uh, Satan and where he came from, his origin and his fall. And then last week, we looked at his tactics, and this week we'll proceed to see the result of his trickery or his devices that he has brought um, upon the man and the woman. And I just briefly rehearsed those for you. I hope you're uh, considering them and putting them to thought and practice as you consider when we look at Genesis 3, we see not just simply a picture of what is possible with Satan. Sure, it, it, yes, we can say it's possible, but, but what I'm suggesting to you is it's probable. Th 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 there is a pattern that, that Satan is using. If, if we go from Genesis 3, where it first originated and the conspiracy began, we'll see that there is a pattern to his behavior in the way in which he seeks to deceive and destroy uh, all the way to the present moment. So you go from Genesis through Revelation, watching the people of God, the plight of man and the sin, and then uh, you watch all the way past the close of the canon, and here in this New Testament uh, era of the church, this pattern of satanic activity remains. And that is, number one, he uses extraordinary means to disorient and confuse. That was a conclusion from last week, and I simply cite for you the use of the serpent is an extraordinary moment. It's not a predictable item. It's not something that, again, there's conversation between the man and the animal kingdom. This is an extraordinary moment of deception. And it's part of that extraordinary nature that appeals or is perhaps mesmerizing or alluring to Eve. And then also as you go through the sequence of what he's taking and saying and how he's twisting it, he distorts what is true. This is the case, as I said last week, with any conspiracy there's, there's just enough truth to the conspiracy to lend it some measure of credibility. Uh, and to some who, who are confused about what, is, what remains unclear, they're swept up into the concept of the conspiracy. It's a distortion of truth. And again and again and again we could cite examples, ongoing examples, where Satan distorts what is true. And then finally, we see through the text, as we watch his craft at work, he lies about the consequences of our indulgence. And that is, we kind of concluded, and, and this is where we're going to pick up as we move forward with uh, the fallout of, of satanic activity in the text is he always presents it. And, and you have to be mindful as believers. I have to be mindful. We together, the church of Christ in this age, has to remain mindful that Satan always presents the bait while hiding the hook. This is classic 101. But by the weakness of our own flesh, we're drawn into it. And fall for it again and again and again and again. This is what we must be on guard against. Is that at this point he presents the bait to Adam and Eve. They take hold of it. As you see there in the text of, of, of verse 6. So when the woman saw it, the tree was good for food. Right? Just as he presented. And then he says to her, your eyes will be opened. He presents this, this bait. And she takes hold. By the end of verse 6, she offers to her husband, and together they indulge in the bait. But there is never bait without a hook. 
And so the hook of condemnation and sin guts into the very essence of humanity. That is their very makeup is now one of sin and condemnation. They are forever changed in this moment. And, and it's not just them in isolation. So, so we would just think of man or mankind in this moment. That, that he and she, that is, that human beings are forever changed. But that would just be too myopic. You have to understand. So also with them, the entire creation was forever changed. So much so that we have to look for a new creation. It's been savaged by sin. Now, remember as we proceed this, this morning about uh, the fall of mankind in this text, um, I, I just please, as you trace the thought with me this morning for the next few moments, just remember that there is no human being, we, this we would confess, that there is not a single human being who does not trace his or her descent from the historical Adam and Eve. Th this we confess. I would simply call to mind, uh, not theory, but text. Paul, in, 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 in debate in Athens, Acts 17, 26, just, and I know you're with me on this, but to, to strengthen our own thoughts as we deeply invest in this text, we learn much from it about ourselves, our time, our place, our sin, redemption. We learn so much. There's so much invested in this text, Acts 17, 26. Paul said, and he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind. That, 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 that's just the truth of the matter. So, so this morning, here we are, uh, uh, mankind in this room, in our place, on the face of the earth. And, and then Paul goes on to say, and having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So here we are in our period. Here we are in our dwelling place. And so together, as we look at this text, there is not a single one of us, according to the weight of this very text, who does not trace our descent from the historical Adam and Eve. So what does that mean? But that every one of us in here, every single man and woman, has a spiritual interest in this passage. It's immediately, I guess, relevant. Now, as we proceed in the passage then with that sense of relevance for me, the, the, the Adam Thomas, here and in, in earlier in Sunday school we read Romans from the Romans uh, 6 parallel, or Romans 5 parallel with Adam and Christ and the two men. And, and so as we look, as I, Adam Thomas, represented here in the garden by Adam in the garden, and you likewise with me here in garden uh, in Genesis 3, we proceed from this passage, we need to see the disordering and devastating effects brought about by sin. The disordering and devastating effects brought about by sin. But in order to understand the, 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 the disordering effect that sin has brought to the, the world, again, not just to Adam and Eve, but to the entire cosmos, to the entire creation, so much that we are to look to a new creation, reordered. We need to kind of recall just briefly in the short passage that we have before us, the loving relationship that Adam and Eve had with God prior to their transgression. Again, it, we, we might think of it in abstract. We think of God loved them very much and they love God. But, 
but then, then we see the fall. And we might think of these things in abstract. We need to keep in mind just how intimate their relationship actually was. And what was at stake in the relationship and what took place in the fall? Just what was really lost? Look at verse 28 of chapter 1. Just to, uh, I want to highlight three things just briefly with you as we proceed in the text about what was the, the, the level of intimacy in the garden. Um, I, I think as we, we pause there, you just think just for a moment, that's how powerful Satan's bait is when you really look at the intimacy that was theirs in the garden, and that that would appeal to them to forfeit said intimacy. How powerful is that? And yet when we look at temptations often in our lives or we dabble in sin, kind of just getting our feet wet in it, because we're always kind of convinced we can manage it. Um, you see here, it just that, that's not true from a biblical perspective. They had so much intimacy here in the garden in their covenant relationship with God. And yet this, this, this deceitful uh, appearance of, the, of Satan to offer them this fruit that was, that was manageable, pluckable, uh, to indulge in, was, was worth forfeiting so much. Look at the deceptive power of sin. Um, first, as I said, chapter 1, verse 28, noticing their loving and intimate relationship, God blesses them explicitly in verse 28, and God blessed them. Here, here, here's Adam and Eve, made in their image, uh, male and female, uh, sharing in that equality of relations. And, and, and God said to them, said to them in his blessing, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. Do you, do you see the, 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 the fullness of the relations? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with little yous. The, the, the little guys, fill the earth, fill them up, subdue the earth, expand the dominion. Enjoy creation at its full. Have dominion over the fish of the sea. What about the birds of the heavens? Yes, over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, the explicit loving relationship wherein God so fully, overwhelmingly blesses a man and a woman explicitly. But look at verse 16 of chapter 2, and it just continues, as was with 128. But look particularly and specifically in verse 16 of chapter 2. He speaks with them. Again, here, here in our place at the fall, in, in the place of the New Testament church, we come and gather each Lord's Day to, to worship and, and to hear from the word of the Lord. My, myself and, and, and you with me, we together come to sit under the way of hearing the word of the Lord we account it a piece of blessedness that we possess the word of the Lord. We count it as that light and that lamp unto our way. So much more also with Adam and Eve. This is a sheer blessing of God that he initiates a relationship of intimacy with the man and with the woman, and it's a verbal relationship. He speaks with them. They hear the word of the Lord. Not through the medium of a pastor, but immediately through God. He speaks the purity of his word to them. Look, look in the covenant relations of verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man. This is loving. This is condescending to the man and love. Saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And in the covenant relationship, we can make this seem a little bit harsh, maybe. Like this is real stern, real direct, real harsh. You can have all this, but you better not touch that. But you notice he's honestly speaking in the way that a father speaks to his own children. Right? He entreats them unto what is right, what is healthy, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, what is lovely. You see how he speaks as a father. And the Lord God commanded to the man, saying, do what is right. I may, you may surely eat. Have it. Have to be fruitful. Be, uh, multiply. Have dominion. Have the blessing. You may surely, absolutely eat of every tree of the garden. He entreats them unto what is right. And he also, like a good father, warns them against what is wrong. Why? Because it's hurtful to them. They're in a loving and intimate relationship with God as father and treating them to what is right and warning them for their preservation against what is wrong. But then the third piece of the intimacy and in, in, in all of this, they're, they're, they're blessed, they're together. They're in this beautiful place, not a single, uh, you know, leaf out of place in this beautiful garden and, and, and they're given industry and, and vocation and capabilities and knowledge and intimacy of language and all of this and then God speaking lovingly as a father don't do this do it I want you to do it and, th and enjoy your your pleasures that I have intended for you but I don't want you to do this because it will hurt you and then to cap it off here, as we look at Genesis 2, just briefly, look at verse 21. He gives them to each other. Look at verse 21 through 25. Um, and, and you see the, the plight of man at the, at the end of verse 20, right? Um, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Here we're introduced to the plight of Adam at this point. And so what does his father do for him? So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And, and look what the father does. And he brought her to him. Then the man saw her. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And look at the story's conclusion, the, the, the kind of like, um, this is where the Disney picture ends and they're riding off into the, 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 the final conclusion, the end. And it's, it's happily, happily ever after. Here's, here's your kind of statement of that in the text, verse 24. Therefore, after all this, the man in his loneliness and the man in his need and his heavenly father met it and blessed it and brought to him this woman who is at last perfect for him. Therefore, this is how you ought live here. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it, and it, and it capstones it this way. And this is how they existed together. The man and his wife were both naked, and 
they were not ashamed of it. And yet, as we see here, as they are given unto one another in perfect harmony and intimacy under the loving conditions of their father, and he was giving to them the condition of nakedness as a sign of their glory. The man could look upon his wife in nakedness, and the wife could look upon the man in his nakedness, and all they saw was beauty and innocence. It's hard to kind of uh, wrap our mind around that in some ways, because we're just so far removed. We, we all wear clothes all the time, and that's a good idea. It, it, it's lawful, it's right, it's correct. We're onto something. So to enter into that sense of intimacy, even in marriage, but, 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 but the, the intimacy that goes beyond your marriage now in the fall, there was this sense where this ability to procreate it connected 128 to the blessing of God to be able to multiply. That the, the sexual organs of, of, of multiplying and exercising dominion and having children brought forth in their own image was a sense of glory to the man and a sense of glory to his wife. Right there in that point of, uh, of reproduction was a glory unto the man and unto the woman and they were able to be together in a state of nakedness and not blush or be awkward but rejoice over beauty and innocence. In all of that, by the means of Satan's deception, they forfeit this perfectly ordered relationship between God and creation. They exist in this garden of serenity and peace. As I said to you with one another, absolutely, clearly and perfectly, and yet, by the means of the serpent's deception, they forfeit such orderliness, such harmony. Notice the disastrous consequences of the Satan's deception as we move forward then into verse 6 and 7. I'll pick up with 6, and then we'll look at 7 as we move forward in the forfeiture of this perfect harmony. Look in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. I want to stop right there before we look at the, their actions that they take in the text and just draw your attention to the thought that their eyes were both opened. You see, when they take the action that will follow in the, in, in, in the, the actions of putting together the, the fig leaves, right? So you, you know what's next. Not like I'm about to reveal to you something new in the story. You, you know it. So you're already there and you're, you're kind of piecing all of this together. Um, but before they take the action of actually sewing the fig leaves together, consider with me just for a moment what it means that their eyes were now opened. Remember the promise up in the text. Uh, uh, this is getting back to Satan and his devices. Look at verse 5. For God knows 
Right? He, so he's misrepresenting. He, he's, got the, he's, he, he's doing the conspiracy. For God knows that when you eat of it, what does he promise them? Th th this is what he knows is going to happen to you. Your eyes will be opened. Now, you see, he, he presents a sense of wisdom and, and advancement and knowledge and understanding about the world and their place in it. God knows your eyes will be opened. Yes, indeed. Right here at the text we see, and her husband and he ate, and then their eyes were opened. Yes, they were opened, but in all the wrong ways. Again, lying about the consequences. When your eyes are opened, you'll be wise. But their eyes are now opened, and they're filled with shame. Again, the bait and the hook, everything they knew. Think about that in a moment, in a moment. Everything they knew, everything they saw, everything they experienced, and everything they believed about God had changed in a moment. Everything. They were now standing there together, viewing the world through the lens of disobedience for the very first time, which is very different. And we know that about ourselves, right, to maybe a different degree than, than, the, than the catastrophe that we see here, going from where they were in this intimacy and then just totally a different reality opening because now we are born in sin. But yet we still admit that we also experience in our own spiritual lives that viewing the world through the lens of disobedience is very different than viewing the world through the lens of obedience. It's very different. We know that. Their eyes were opened to a world of new realities. Not possibilities, but new realities. You see, evil at this point was no longer theoretical to the man and to the woman. It's no longer something that they will learn, perhaps, by God's teaching. That there is a way, perhaps, as we speculate a little bit here, perhaps the period of probation, and, and, and they continue to learn from the Lord, that they would perhaps positively have learned from his hand, not their own experience, but from his hand, the idea that there is a possible way to di be disobedient, that there is such a thing as perhaps the possibility of evil but they would have never experienced it or learned it on their own. But you see, at this point, she plucks and she takes and she eats and gives it to her husband, and he ate, and their eyes were opened. Evil is no longer theoretical to them. There they stand in the garden, naked, beside one another, and sin is now actual and real. It is around them. And as we proceed through the text, we see it is even within them. Indeed, their eyes were opened. And according to 2.17 in the covenant of works, what we see there is they died that day. All that beauty of blessing, all the beauty of receiving the word of the Lord, all the wonderful thing of being naked and intimate together and having no sense of shame or embarrassment, but glory and joy and intimacy, they died that But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. It's not good for you. It's not good for you to know that apart from me. 
for in the day that you do eat of it, you will surely die. Satan says in verse 4, you will not surely die. That's a lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes would simply be opened. And you will be like him. You'll know good and you'll know evil. Indeed, their eyes were opened. And at the point of having their eyes opened through the medium of sin rather than through the word of the Lord, notice the new feelings and the emotions that immediately overwhelm the couple. Uh, look at verse 7 again. Then their, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And, and so the action taken, they sewed fig leaves together, and they made for themselves loincloths. You see, their sin brought immediate feelings pouring into their lives. It was no longer harmonious. But standing next to you, my husband, makes me feel weird. It's, the, the way that we're being right now relating is wrong. There, there, there's something different now. Fundamentally, there's something different. My eyes, they've opened. And sin is no longer theory, nor, neither is it out there. Indeed, it's right here around me and within me. And their response in verse 7 is a response of disgrace. They've been disgraced. And the woman and the man both, in their actions, betray their feelings. They feel shame and guilt in the most intimate and private part of who he is as a man. Here I am, Adam, as I stand. I'm a man, I, and here it is, and, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed of that. At that very part of who they are, that's the very part they're not ashamed of. And it's the very part that they now stand with great guilt and disgrace and shame. And she is a woman feeling the need immediately to cover herself. It's not like new neighbors moved in still just him and her. The guilt is so strong that is brought on by sin that their minds cannot bear having it looked at. I can't have you look at me. I can't have you look at me. We've changed. Holy innocence, which would be described at the very beginning of their relationship in verse 25, the point of not being ashamed. There is no shame. They had holy innocence. And by the opening of their eyes, by the transgression of God's good and fatherly law, they have moved from innocence to shame. Think about the relationship between Adam and Eve, self-giving, right? Mutual self-giving has become in a moment, self-protection. Where did that impulse come from? That now you have to cover yourself. Where does it come from for you that you have to cover yourself? Self-giving has become self-protection. Confidence in the other has become insecurity and doubt. Openness has now become hiddenness. Because of our sin. And our shame. Speaking of the loincloths that they make, notice verse 7, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves 
loincloths. Speaking on the activity of putting the loincloths together, Luther uh, makes a great statement here. He says, quote, no one wants to appear as what he is. Think of it, it's an interesting perspective uh, Luther's drawing out here, a, a, a sharp thought. And, and I think you'll see the immediate application of it. He goes on to describe it, even though he is a thief, or if he be an adulterer or a murderer, no one wants to appear as what he is. Luther goes on, in order to attain this, they sew together wide fig leaves. That is, they try every device they can find to gloss over and mitigate their error. I think the relevancy of that is immediate for all of us. Again, as I said, everyone has a spiritual stake in this text. Think about what he's drawing upon here in the activity of the loincloths. No one wants to really appear as he truly is. Even if he is committed to the life of being a thief or an adulterer or a murderer, he doesn't want to appear that way. And neither do they. Neither do we. This is often, I would submit, it is often what we do with our sin. We all sin. We know that. We all commit sin. But what do we do with the sin committed? We often act the part of Adam and Eve. We try to find methods to manage it. That is, we're in control of it. We often neglect the proverbial wisdom. Can man carry hot burning coals in his chest and not be burned? Can he do so? Can he pull that off? We seek rather to manage our sin. Perhaps we also go on, just like Adam and Eve here, and we seek to conceal it. That is, maybe we can simply cover it up. We can get out of it, maybe by drawing a focus on another. We can conceal who we are, all instead of repenting of it. But with repentance only is their promise for forgiveness. It's important here also to notice how uh, at one act quickly escalates and gets rolling out of control. That is kind of, uh, we, we might say it a bit in politics or, or in, in our age in media that it's not necessarily true here, but the idea that the cover-up is worse than the crime. Sometimes we appeal to that idea to just come out with it, right? And watch the cover-up ensue. Now we have a transgression. We have a trespass of the law of God. Man has fallen. And now what is his attempt? His very next move is to manage it, to conceal it. It's not as bad. Just calm down, Eve. It's not as bad as you think. We can, we can, just, we can just put the toothpaste back in the bottle. Heads up, you cannot. So... With Adam and Eve, likewise with us, our attempts at concealing sin only compounds the error. Think about that in your own life. Your attempt to conceal only compounds the error. 
Look at how we see it in the text, verse 7, they make the loincloths. You see that, or their their first move is to make loincloths. And I'm saying to you, this is their first out-of-the-gate attempt to manage the sinfall. Let's manage this. Let's put this back together. Just, I know you feel weird. I feel weird. I don't know why we feel weird. Let's just not feel weird. Let's make loincloths. The next attempt is 8 through 10, where they begin to hide themselves. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, hearing it, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The feeble attempt to not only like conceal or to manage, but now to conceal the truth of what happened. Do you see what Adam said? Interesting in verse 10 is a, is a real key piece to the human psychology, right? Verse 10, that is a key piece to how we behave. Do you see what he says? So he's like, well, I heard you coming and I hid myself. He's thinking, well, I hid myself. Why would I hide myself from him? I better come up with why I had to do it. Because I was naked. Do you see, in other words, he's speaking to the condition that he's forced to be in now and not addressing the action that brought it on. And God knows it right away. Notice he didn't say, well, I heard you coming and uh, I got nervous. I hid myself because to be honest with you, I ate from the tree of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. I, I, I disobeyed the covenant. I, I, I did it, and here, here I find myself standing in said condition. He said, well, I had to hide. You get it. I mean, I was naked. There's a massive difference in a repentant behavior in the idea to obfuscate and get out of the issue. I just found myself naked, you know. So then God says to him the obvious. Who told you that you were naked? cover-up is not helpful to repenting of the crime. So they take to hiding themselves. The third piece of where we see it escalate. So going from managing the sin through loincloth makeup, let's just cover it up and we'll feel, we'll feel better about it in the morning. Hid themselves. Uh, here comes God. Let's conceal the truth. Well, you know, I only had to hide because I was naked. You know how that is. And then 11 through 13, they blame shift. Look at verse 11 uh, down through 13. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten? Right, because Adam didn't confess. He didn't admit. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And look at our attempts, our next attempt. So, so we're managing, we're covering, we're moving, and now we're just, well, boy, my back's against the wall. Blame shift. It's the last ditch effort. Blame shift. The man said, well, it's the woman. Look at the question. It does, it, it, he's not answering. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat? Point blank. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Well, it's just that the woman whom you gave to be with me. Look at how far he goes. So it's her, you know, her presence. And actually, she even gave me the fruit of the tree. And, you know, I ate. But only after she showed up and she gave it to me. 
Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, it was the serpent. He deceived me. And I ate. You see, our victim, our sense of a, being a victim, like Adam and Eve, it, it wasn't my fault that I ate, but I'm a victim of Eve. And in fact, you see in the text right at the very beginning, I'm a victim of even you. God, it's your fault. You gave the woman who is the source of the whole problem to me. If she wasn't here, I would just be excelling. So you go so far into the conspiracy, so far into the cover-up, so far in your pride, so far in your inability to humble yourself and admit your sin and to repent of it and receive atoning forgiveness, you'd even look God in the eye and be like, if it wasn't for what you've done in my life, I would not have had to have acted the way that I've done. And yet, again, so often... We, like Adam and Eve, fail to take responsibility for our sin. Admit our guilt before our Father. And with true repentance, seek forgiveness. But notice the last piece this morning, and I just conclude with this thought. Something that stands out and will cover the rest of the entire canon the entire rest of the history of redemption is if you look at the text and you see and you remember in your mind that God knew that this had already transpired in the garden, right? You know that. He knew that this occurred. And look at his disposition toward man as a sinner. We saw his disposition towards man in a state of innocence, lovely, condescending, gracious, kind, provisionary. And now man has made this great fall, changed the entire cosmos, blamed even God to his face, saying, you know, it's kind of your fault. And look at his disposition toward man as a sinner. Follow his movements in the text with me as we conclude. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? He, he's not here to, on a fact-finding mission. He knows what's been done. And the man and his wife, look at their response to him. They hid from him. But look at verse 9 as it stands out to us. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? think just for a moment what the action could have been between verse 8 and verse 9. It could have been much different. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But here he appears in the garden in the cool of the day. Man, hi dog. And he cries out to him, where are you? I end with these thoughts. One author notes a beautiful picture here with this, and I close. With this question, where are you? We are witnessing the beginning of redemptive history. A history that 
is not the story of people and their sin searching for God, but the story of the God who comes looking for his people. And who will continue to do so over and over again right through the centuries, culminating in the life and ministry of Jesus, the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, who says of himself, I have come to seek and to save the lost. The beginning of all this history can be traced back to the very first question that God asks in scripture. Where are you? Let's pray.